Jenga. Have you played it? Uh, have you played Jenga? If you haven't had the pleasure, uh, Jenga is a game in which um, players take turns removing blocks from a tower and restacking them on top. And as the tower grows up, the structure becomes more and more wobbly. Why? Well, because the base and each successive level, once compromised of three blocks, becomes increasingly divided. The base and some levels still have two kind of outside blocks, if you played the game wisely, um, but eventually they'll move down to one. And then, you know, somebody touches it and the whole thing falls over. I wonder if you've experienced something like this in your Christian life. Have you, have you ever noticed that it's, it's actually harder to stand firm, remain stable, when you're on your own than when you're surrounded by brothers and sisters who are themselves standing firm? Well, this is a, a bit of what we think about as we turn to study Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 982. And you should know uh, that during the course of this sermon, uh, you have permission. I'm pretty certain that my voice will do something funny at some point in time, and you are allowed to laugh. So I want to give you that permission. Back to this letter, though. Uh, the Apostle Paul planted, out, planted this church in Philippi on his second missionary journey sometime between 49 and 51 AD. Paul was compelled to write this letter to the church in Philippi in large part due to their partnership in the gospel with him and his personal situation. Paul, you see, he was in prison and he wanted to make sure, he wanted to let his supporting church know that the gospel was still advancing and he was still rejoicing. This afforded Paul the opportunity to pivot and address the church. Paul wanted to encourage the church to continue standing firm in the gospel in Philippi and to keep rejoicing even in the face of their difficulties. As we learned last week, a, a group of Judaizers had been troubling the congregation by teaching that in order to be saved, you have to add circumcision to Christ's work. Paul exhorted the believers in Philippi to stand firm in the true gospel, which does not proclaim our work plus Jesus' work, but Christ's work alone as the ground of our salvation. Paul exhorted them to persevere. He exhorted the church in Philippi to persevere by imitating Jesus' death and resurrection. Die to sin and live to righteousness because Jesus died for your sin and was raised for you. If you take a look at the, the first verse of chapter 4, you'll see that Paul said, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is but an echo of what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. So flip over a page or two in your Bibles and take a look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. There Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are, you see there, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You flip back over to chapter 4 now, you'll see that Paul wanted the church in Philippi to pursue unity, to stand firm in Jesus. They were to do this through humility, through, through giving up their position and place and entering into the service of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Belie between Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 and Philippians chapter 4 verse 1, Paul demonstrated this through the life and ministry of Jesus. And in the real life examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, as we approach Philippians chapter 4 verses 2 through 9, We'd be mistaken if we thought that Paul was moving on to a different subject. Um, Paul is addressing the same subject. Uh, a subject 
the subject of unity, of standing firm in the Lord Jesus Christ through humble service and sacrifice. After all, if you take a look there at verse 2, you'll see that disunity is readily apparent in a division between two women in the congregation. Uh, read Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9 with me now. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. What we're learning here is that for the Philippians to stand firm, to remain united in the Lord, and to continue to advance the gospel in Philippi, they will need one to pursue reconciliation within their congregation. Two, demonstrate reasonableness to the watching world. And three, reflect deeply upon the things of God. We'll consider Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9 under these three headings. Reconciliation, reasonableness, and reflection. Let's begin with our first point, reconciliation. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, Paul requests that two women be reconciled. And he requests that his true companion help them. Take a look at verses 2 through 4 again. I entreat Yodi and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Here Paul gets personal. He has been calling for unity all throughout this letter. But here he mentions a source or an episode of division in the congregation. You would be hard-pressed to find something more disastrous to the winsome witness of a local church than division. Even between just two people in the church, such division necessarily has ripple effects, doesn't it? Just imagine Yodia talking with a group of friends at church. What happens when Syntyche walks by? Perhaps she gets the collective cold shoulder from the whole group. And that can even happen unconsciously. Everyone in the group knows how Yodia feels about Syntyche, and by an unconscious acceptance of Yodia's sinful division, that group collectively gives the cold shoulder. Most, maybe even all, in that group don't necessarily have a problem with Syntyche. What happens from there? What does Syntyche do? Well, she seeks refuge and comfort from other believers in the church body, and suddenly what? Factions are forming in the church. Division has gone deeper than just two people. Paul knows that this is disastrous for standing firm in the gospel. Divisions are disastrous for the church's work and witness. We can't survive in this world on our own. We go wobbly without other believers. It's too tempting and too difficult to stand on your own and proclaim the gospel. Paul also knows that outsiders can tell when a church is divided. There's an atmosphere of distrust. It's thick in the air. And it makes it difficult to move out the church body and form relationships. Paul knows that this division is disastrous to the church's work and witness. Paul doesn't tell us explicitly what has divided these two women 
We can probably rule out a doctrinal division. Paul's not afraid to address and settle doctrinal matters. He did just that in the previous section of his letter. Whatever is brought about division between these two sisters in Christ is not a matter of first importance, which are those issues that determine a person's saving relation to Jesus Christ. After all, these women, as we see here, were fellow workers with Paul in the gospel and have their names written in the book of life. These women are sisters in Christ, but they're not acting like it. Because we live in this fallen world, we know that believers can become divided over small and petty things. Believers have been known to cultivate division over music, the length of sermon and services, dress and attire, small group policies, perspectives on the last things, and so much more. So members of Arlington Baptist Church, are there divisions among us? Are there any friends in this congregation who have ceased to speak or have separated? What's the answer to such division? Well, Paul gives it there in verse 2, doesn't he? He entreated Yodi and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Paul was pleading with these two sisters in Christ to be of the same mind. You know that word agree is actually the, word, the same word in the Greek that appears under the phrase have the same mind in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul writes this, Complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. How would these two sisters come to have the same mind? How would they come to agree? How will you come to agree with another believer? The answer is found in that little phrase, in the Lord. Here Paul is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, Paul beautifully described how believers have come to have the same mind. Like Jesus, believers are to let go of their position, their place, their preference, their priority, and humble themselves and enter into the service of their fellow believers. You see, it is the gospel that is the ground of reconciliation, unity. If there is division in this household of God, this church, or if there is division in your household, then in all likelihood, there will need to be a death in order for there to be a resurrection. One or more involved in the conflict will need to give up position, place, preference, and priority, in flesh the humility of Jesus, and seek to serve. Children, are you ready to do this? Young people, when you are in an argument with your siblings or friends, are you ready to give up position and place and preference and priority in order to love and serve and be reconciled? Yodia and Syntyche, whom Paul treats as equals, need to move off their position. Whatever it was, it wasn't essential to the Christian faith but it was harmful to the church's work and witness. The gospel is the ground of reconciliation. And you should be encouraged because reconciliation is not beyond reach. Jesus reconciles sinners to God. And he reconciles sinners to one another. Christian, your salvation is evidence, it's proof, that reconciliation between the world's greatest enemies, God and man, is possible. Reconciliation will happen through the pattern of the gospel, through death to sin, through union with the Lord Jesus, and through full and free forgiveness. When we find ourselves in conflict, do we hold our positions and think that the other person, they have to move? Or will we do some self-examination? Will we take a look and see where we have sinned? And put that sin to death. Do you need to give up your position, your place, your preference, your priority? Move toward being of one mind in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. It's not easy to do. And Paul recognizes that. That's why he calls his, you see that in the text, his true companion in verse 3. To help these women. We often need help in overcoming conflicts, don't we? 
We often need help in reconciliation. And the the really interesting thing about verse 3 is that we don't know who this true companion was. It was almost certainly a real person in the church at Philippi. Some have suggested that it was Epaphroditus. Others have suggested that it was Luke or an elder in the congregation. Still others have suggested that Paul had no particular person in mind. And that last proposal, I think, is intriguing. What if Paul had no particular person in mind? What if Paul named a generic person so as to encourage each particular church member to consider whether or not they ought to step into the fray and be a minister of reconciliation? What about you, dear Christian? Do you know of two people who are intractably at odds? If you know what it takes to be reconciled to God, then you know what it takes to be reconciled to other sinners. Christian, if you know that reconciliation and the resurrection of a relationship comes by way of death to sin, then you are equipped to help two believers agree in the Lord Jesus. So will you be a true companion? Can you be a true companion to those two believers and help them give up their position, their place, their preference, their priority? They're holding on to sin so that they might agree in the Lord. Will you be a true companion to the elders of this church and help us heal wounds? That is what Paul was asking. He was asking for help. Will you help your brothers and sisters agree in the Lord? The elders of Arlington Baptist are asking for you to be a true companion. Paul doesn't just call out Yodia and Syntyche's division. He also calls out their devotion to Jesus and Jesus' devotion to them. Did you notice that? There was a time when these sisters in Christ held the privileged place of laboring with the Apostle Paul. They no doubt cherished those fond memories of helping Paul get that church going in Philippi. Even while Paul is warning the congregation about their division, he is calling to mind and commending their example of devotion to the advance of the gospel. Paul even reassures these sisters in Christ of Jesus' devotion to them. In the latter part of verse 3, Paul expresses his belief that the names of these sisters were written in the book of life. The book of life is a concept that's strewn throughout the Bible. It turns up in Psalm 69, verse 28, and Luke chapter 10, verse 20, along with a handful of references in the book of Revelation. And what this idea of the book of life conceptually expresses is that our God is committed to rescuing His people from His coming wrath against sin through salvation in Jesus. Though Paul underscores the disaster of division that Yodia and Syntyche are in the midst of. He also comforts his sisters in Christ by expressing his belief that they will make it safely home to heaven. They have been reconciled to God in and through Jesus Christ, and having been so reconciled, their names are secured in God's gracious book of life. This ought to bring joy to every believer. Is it any wonder that Paul says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Verse 4 is a kind of hinge verse. It swings back and forth, making contact between what comes before and after. And with this disastrous division taking place in the church, it's easy to forget the reconciling and redeeming power of Jesus Christ. But Christ's power to redeem and reconcile broken relationships gives us joy in the midst of trials. And the very notion of joy reminds us that there is a world of difference. And I mean that phrase intentionally. There is a world of difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is, in the end, related to our circumstances. We can be happy when things are going well. But it's hard to be happy, put on a happy face, when disaster and difficulty strike. Joy, on the other hand, is difficult. It is, if I can put it provocatively, defiant. Joy is defiant. And what does Paul say? He says, rejoice in the Lord. Joy, you see, is resolute and confident that reconciliation and redemption in Jesus Christ secures our resurrection from the dead. 
and a home in glory with our Savior. See, we can press through difficulty and division. We can give ourselves to the hard work of reconciliation now because we know that one day all will be set right in Jesus Christ. One day, all harm, hurt, and heartache will be healed by Jesus. It is surprising to see where joy turns up in the New Testament. It typically turns up near trial. And that's where we find it here. Brothers and sisters, if you are suffering from division and broken relationships, rejoice that it will not always be so. Jesus can and will heal them. If not in this world, then certainly in the world to come. We labor for reconciliation with joy and hope because we know the reconciling power of God in Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder what you think of all this. Do you think it's strange that as Christians, we have hope for reconciliation in our personal relationships because we have been reconciled to God? Well, friend, what is your hope for reconciled relationships? Have you, have you lost all hope? Which relationship would you most like to see reconciled and restored? If your answer to that last question was not your relationship with God, then can I invite you to reconsider? Friend, I'm here pleading with you today to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You and I and everyone here have sinned and rebelled against God. And our sin places us in danger of suffering eternal wrath forever in hell and being separated from God's generous love. See, we need to be reconciled to God. And the good news of the Bible is not that we have moved toward God, but that He has moved toward us. In love, the eternal Son of God humbled Himself by leaving His place of privilege, of priority, and praise. And he lived the life of perfect obedience to God the Father on this earth. He lived a life of ridicule by rebels and scorn by sinners. And then he gave up his life for them by dying on the cross and taking their place, the punishment that their sins deserve. And three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that we can be reconciled to God through Jesus' righteous work. And now Jesus calls us to turn from our sin and to trust in Him. Jesus calls us to receive His righteousness as a gracious gift and be reconciled to God. So friends, turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. Believe that He lived and died and was raised from the grave to reconcile you to God. Reconciliation within the local church is an important witness to the watching world. We see the world at war with one another. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ must be different. And that difference is displayed in our unity, in our ongoing reconciliation and our rejoicing. It's also displayed through reasonableness. Reasonableness is the heading for our second point to which we now turn. As we consider our calling to display reasonableness to the watching world, read Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through verse 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Since Paul declared that he would urge the Philippians to rejoice again, I figured that I should follow his lead. So we need to take a look at verse 4 again. I wonder if you realize that what Apostle Paul declares there in verse 4 is a command. You realize that. Paul commands the Philippians to rejoice. What do you, what do you think about that? Can you, can you command someone to rejoice? Well, indeed you can. Well, at least the divinely inspired 
apostle thought he could. He even thought that he could command believers to rejoice in the Lord. What's that word there? Always. In other words, there is not a time, place, or space where joy is not enjoined upon believers. Again, Paul can command joy because it's not dependent upon circumstances. Paul can command joy because it's rooted in a certain outcome, the salvation of our souls. Paul can command joy because joy honors God. Joy honors God because it displays confidence, not in ourselves, but in the God who perfectly leads and guides our lives. Joy honors God because it expresses confidence in God's goodness and in His love. Lest you think it's impossible, it's an impossible command for those who are in the midst of suffering, recall Paul's location. Paul is writing from prison. He knows suffering. And he not only commands the Philippians to have joy for a moment, but to keep joying. After all, is that not what rejoicing amounts to? Delighting again and again and again in God's generous grace in Jesus Christ. As Spurgeon once remarked, this word rejoice is not only joy once, but it is joy over again. Rejoice. We are to joy and then we are to rejoy. Look again at verse 4. Where do we rejoice? We rejoice in the Lord. This tells us something about Jesus, doesn't it? When we are reminded that Jesus is Lord, we're reminded that He is ruling and reigning. He is in control. Jesus not only rules and reigns, but He will also return. In the words of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. This is why believers can be reasonable, verse 5. In a few other translations, you'll find that word reasonableness is also translated gentleness, kindness, moderateness, or mildness. Reasonable is an excellent translation as it conveys the idea that there's, there's to be a certain kind of stability in a believer's response to distress. One scholar pointed out that in ancient literature, this term for reasonableness was often used of an attitude of, of kindness where the normal expected response should be retaliation. Both rejoicing and reasonableness are to mark the believer in the face of difficulty. Again, what undergirds both is that the Lord is at hand. We believe in a future. We believe in the return of Jesus Christ. This is why we can be reasonable and gentle in a distressing present. All that is out of sorts will be sorted out when Christ returns. What a wonderful comfort. The Lord is at hand. In other words, Paul is saying, you know, Jesus is near. It's like he's, he's right on the other side of the door, just, just ready to come through, waiting to come in. If Jesus walked in as you were arguing with a brother or sister in Christ, would you be ashamed about what you've been arguing over? You know, sometimes our arguments are over big things. But let's be honest. Don't our arguments in the main begin over such petty things? Things that make no difference and will have no difference once eternity is thrust upon us? How would your argument change if you knew that Jesus was just on the other side of the door, ready to come in? Jesus is near. He's just ready to come through the door. Jesus is going to return. And what is ultimately important when he does will be brought to the fore. Put all of your arguments in that light. Put the divisions between Yodia and Syntyche in that light. It's as if Paul is saying, sisters, be reasonable. Be gracious and generous with one another, just as the Lord has been with you. Reflect on what's truly important. For Jesus, he's about to return. Is this worth petty retaliation and ongoing division? Or is it time to be reasonable? Overlook offenses and forgive. Jesus, he's just about to walk through the door. And when he does, the, the pettiness and trivial nature of your division will be brought to light and exposed. Let's not be divided on earth when we'll soon be united in heaven. And this is important. 
the world is watching. What did Paul say? He didn't say, let your reasonableness be known to the church. He said, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Living with the return of Jesus Christ as an imminent expectation will encourage your rejoicing and temper, or should temper, your unreasonableness. One aspect of reasonableness is also repentance. It is unreasonable to hold on to slights and simmer in bitterness. Someone once said that bitterness is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. Allowing our minds to churn insults, offenses, and criticisms over and over and over in our minds is unreasonable. It will not lead to being temperate, but being hot-tempered. It breeds anxiety where there is Conflict and the possibility of reconciliation, anxiety is often present. What will, what will they say? What will that person say? What will they do? All of this stirs up anxiety. And remember, too, that the Philippians are facing trouble without and within. Outside, they're facing the Judaizers, and within, they're facing this conflict and division. Do you notice what Paul said? To an anxious church, Paul said... Do not be anxious. It doesn't feel like a very sympathetic reply to their circumstance, does it? But what else is Paul supposed to say to sinful distrust in God's goodness, grace, and generosity? Anxiety, though it, it can often be reasonable from a human perspective, though it can be reasonable, it's finally unreasonable. You know why? Anxiety is unreasonable because it's unbelief. Anxiety is unbelief because at the end of the day, it denies God's sovereignty, control, and love. Sometimes it denies all three. Anxiety says, God, you're, you're, you're not sovereign, so I have to look for another solution. Anxiety says, God, you're, you're not in control, so I have to take control. Uh, anxiety says, God, you're, you're not loving because otherwise I wouldn't be in this distress. Christian anxiety is, is the enemy, is a enemy of your soul. Worry is wearying, which leads to withering and wilting. And that is why in love, the Apostle Paul gives no quarter to anxiousness. Did you see what he said there in verse 6? Put your eyes on it. Do not be anxious about anything. Believers are not allowed by command of Christ's apostles, apostle to be anxious about anything. And this is a loving command, though it's honestly hard to hear, isn't it? Now we all get anxious, and Paul undoubtedly knows that. That's why, like a faithful physician, he gives us the antidote, doesn't he, to anxiousness. And that antidote is prayer. Well, what does prayer do? It brings our hearts near to the Lord, the one who is sovereign, in control, and loving. You see, not only is the Lord Jesus at hand, ready to return and dissolve all distress, but we... As the people of God, have the privilege of bringing our hearts near to the Lord in prayer. Psalm 145, verse 18, maybe in the back of Paul's mind here. In Psalm 145, verse 18, we read, The Lord is near to all who call on Him. Christian, call on Him. Our anxiety is nothing less than an opportunity to bring our worried and wearied hearts to God. What did the Lord Jesus say to us? In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he said, Come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Apostle Peter reminded uh, this, uh, us of this truth from another angle. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, we read, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It is the testimony of Scripture that our God desires to give His people rest and relief from their cares. He cares for you. Remember that, dear Christian. He cares for you. 
In every anxious circumstance, we are to pray. Brothers and sisters, reflect on the last time you were anxious. What was it? Uh, A job transition? Moving from one place to another? Sitting for an exam? Preparing for a meeting? Waiting for a diagnosis? Or watching over your children? Whatever it may have been, how much time did you spend worrying? And how much time did you spend praying? Anxiety does not accomplish a thing. It doesn't change the situation. It doesn't put you in control. In fact, anxiety can make things worse, can't it? When you get stirred up with anxiety and you share that with another, they can get stirred up too. Anxiety cannot accomplish a single thing in your life, but prayer can. Prayer can appeal to God and He can hear our cry and answer. In a certain sense, it's impossible to avoid anxiety. But it is not impossible to prepare ourselves for a rapid response to it. When anxiety strikes, what should be our immediate action plan? Prayer. In prayer, we remember that the Lord is near to all who call on Him. And in prayer, we draw our hearts near to the one who can actually do something about our situation. What was it that we sang in the service earlier? Saying, oh, what peace we often, we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Don't forfeit peace through anxiety. Don't needlessly bear pain. Instead, bear your soul to the Lord. But begin with thanksgiving. That's what Paul says halfway through verse 6. When you pray, when you're worried, when you're anxious, when you pray, present your requests with thanksgiving. This is immensely practical advice from Paul. Thanksgiving encourages humility. Thanksgiving calls us to remember God's faithfulness in the past, which helps with anxiety in the present. Thanksgiving reminds us that our God loves us and cares for us, that He leads us and feeds us. When you are anxious, stop and pray. But before you get to your burdens, count your blessings. Count them one by one. When you're anxious, thank God for as many things as you possibly can before you begin to bring your burdens before Him. In doing so, you're reminding yourself of his faithfulness and gentleness and grace, grace and love. And this is how the peace of God will begin to wash over us. Because we see that our God is in control. In prayer, we remember that our God has always been faithful and that he will be again. This is what brings us peace. This is what guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Paul mentions our, mentions our hearts and our minds to convey that this is a holistic blessing. God plans to give us peace in our whole person, peace in our whole being. We trust a sovereign, good, and loving Lord who is near to us. He is God with us. We trust a gracious and generous God who hears His people and acts on our behalf. He is God for us. This bringing to mind God's sovereign goodness and love is what guards or garrisons our hearts and minds. A garrison is a military post. That's the word that Paul is using here for guard. Garrison is a a body of troops stationed in a particular location. This would have been vivid imagery for the church in Philippi. For Philippi was a Roman colony where Roman officers would go to retire. It was well guarded or garrisoned by Rome. Paul is reminding believers that they don't trust in governments but in God. Peace is not found in the Pax Romana. It's not found in Caesar, but in the true Lord, the Lord Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. It is the peace of God that garrisons or guards us. This is what we read about in Isaiah 26 earlier in the service. Isaiah 26, 1. In that day, 
this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. And then two verses later in Isaiah 26, 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It is the God of peace and the God who gives peace who guards us. Why would we need to be guarded? So that we can hold our ground amidst life's storms of division and distress. We need to be guarded so that we can, in the words of Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. We need to be garrisoned and guarded so that as a church, we can continue to carry forward the church's work and witness. And we need to pray. And in doing so, we entrust ourselves to our faithful creator and redeemer who has promised to guide and guard us. This is what it looks like. For a believer to live reasonably. Rejoicing in the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus. Recalling his soon return and his rule. And bringing our anxious hearts to God by making our requests known to him. Paul has called the church in Philippi not to stand by when division emerges. He has called them to reconciliation. He has called the church to action when distress weighs heavy on their hearts. He has called them to reasonableness and prayer. And now we turn and consider our third and final point, reflection. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul calls the Philippians to think and act or reflect on what is true and to act or reflect in their imitation of him what is the way of Christ. Read Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That word finally, in verse 8, probably signals to us, that, not that Paul is concluding his letter, but that he's rounding out his teaching on how to stand firm in the Lord when division and distress confronts the church. Not only are believers to be reconciled, and not only are believers to be reasonable, but when confronted with such challenges, believers are to reflect, to think on godly virtues, and to act, to bear them out in their lives. In verse 8, Paul, you see there, he rattles off a, a long list of virtues. For Paul, anything that can fit underneath the umbrellas, these are kind of really umbrella terms, umbrella virtues, anything that can fit underneath these uh, umbrella categories are, are worthy of our time and our thinking. Now, the virtues listed here are, were, were actually common virtues in the ancient world. Truth, beauty, and goodness were worthy of meditation and commended by unbelieving persons in ancient literature. Christian, let's remember this about our, our unbelieving neighbors and friends. Very often, they do love and long for what is good. It's uncharitable for us to think that our unbelieving neighbors cannot have a single good thought. Yes, the fall of man into sin has radically and totally darkened the mind. Man really has been marred by the fall. And yet the image of God in man has not been erased. Men and women still have consciences that testify to the truth and from time to time think on it. Still what Paul is calling for here is not a mere setting our minds on what the best secularists can ponder too. Paul as a Christian is writing a Christian letter to a Christian church and he's calling them to think Christianly. To, to look for and ponder God's imprint on the world. It's one thing to recognize the true, the good, and the beautiful. It's another thing altogether to meditate on the fact that God put it there for His glory. The first reality then is this. We have to think. Christian, when was the last time you stopped to think? When was the last time you self-consciously paused to meditate on truth? Was it, well, there's a distinct possibility that it was interrupted by a, a ding or a buzz. 
you know, some social media notification went off, an email came in, a text message filled with emojis turned up. You know, our, our lives are, are bombarded with, with interruptions, aren't they? And if we're honest, there's precious little time for thinking. Which means, what? If there's precious little time for thinking, it means that there's precious little thinking going on. And that should be concerning. Here, Paul commands you to reflect on the truth of God. And so if you'd like to be a Christian who's obedient to the word of God, which is the only kind of Christian there is, you must think. You might say to yourself, I I haven't got time for meditating on these things. Well, you've got to make it. Uh, Might I suggest to you Sunday afternoon, uh, take 30 minutes maybe every Sunday afternoon and read some portion of God's word and think on it. Maybe read the passage that was preached on or the passage that will be preached on in the evening service and, and meditate on it. Take up a, a faithful Christian book. Read, read just a few pages and think on what it is teaching. Think and pray about what you need to apply to your life from what God taught you in the service. There is a reason that Paul lists these virtues for our reflection. These things will affect, affect our affections. We should be drawn to truth. We should be drawn to the honorable, the just, and lovely, and so on. If we're to be drawn to them in our hearts, we must be clear about them in our minds and about how their characteristics reveal God. And that, that takes thinking. And in this thinking, we're, we're kind of we're carving out new grooves for the goodness of God to run in our hearts and minds. We're carving out grooves that go against the grain of the profane, but go with the grain of God's design for our lives, glorifying Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What, what's the old adage? Garbage in, garbage out. How about a new adage? Good in. Glory to God out. How many of us have thought sinful, have sinful thoughts and desires that crop up in our hearts and minds? That's all of us. How shall we overcome? By recognizing that those desires are out of accord, out of accord with what is true and beautiful and good and holy. And then by giving our hearts and minds to thinking on what is true and beautiful and good and pure. And then by giving our hearts and minds to thinking on what is true and beautiful and good, that's part of how we overcome. Part of the way in which we overcome harmful affections is by replacing them with holy affections. And we do that by carving new grooves. Christian people are thinking people. This thinking is useful to our evangelism too. If our unbelieving neighbors and friends admire the true and the good and the beautiful, then that can be a jumping off point for sharing the good news of Jesus with them. We can point out how truth and beauty and goodness that they see in the world reveal the true, beautiful, and good God who made the world and put it there. You you see that, friend, because, because God made the world that way. We not only want our unbelieving friends and family to see truth and beauty and goodness in the world, we also want them to see it in us. It's not by accident that doing follows thinking here in this passage. Paul first calls the believers in Philippi to think, to reflect on what is worthy of praise, and then he calls the believers in Philippi to reflect his way of life. Verse 9, what you have learned and received And heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Did you notice the the four key words in the first part of verse 9? They are learned, received, heard, and seen. Paul verbally declared and visibly demonstrated how the Philippians were to live. He gave them words to live by and works to imitate. This is what elders are especially called to do. But it is also precisely what every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is supposed to do. Who, Christian, can learn from you? Who can receive 
the wisdom you've received from God. Is anyone walking with you? Is anyone listening to you? Is anyone watching your way of faith and life? You can be assured of this. You are being watched. What is your witness? Is it a commendable witness to Jesus Christ? Is it the kind of witness that others can learn from and practice? There's a great, there's a great deal of wisdom in the buddy system. Cross the street with a friend. There's danger in this world. Walk through another believer. Walk through this world with another believer. And it shows a great deal of humility and wisdom if you follow someone who can help you avoid the potholes and the passing cars. Not only should you learn from another believer the pathway of a Christian, but you should also, by God's grace, strive to be a believer that others can follow. And as we conclude, we should meditate on the last phrase of verse 9. And the peace of God, and the, sorry, and the God of peace will be with you. See, Paul is inverting a phrase he mentioned earlier, isn't he? What could be more reassuring to a divided and distressed congregation that the comfort, the comfort that the God of peace will be with his people? Believers facing division and distress might be tempted to flee to Caesar and his claims to bring peace. But here we see that peace belongs to God. He makes uh, peace with sinners by the blood of the cross. He keeps believers in perfect peace until he sends the Prince of Peace to consummate, rule, and reign over the new heavens and the new earth. Where there is division, let us pursue reconciliation. Let us make peace. Where there is distress, let us be reasonable and remember that the Prince of Peace is at hand. And may our minds reflect on the truth that brings peace. And may our lives reflect the peace that we have in Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.